Uh, so we've been in this series, Holy Rollers, in Leviticus, uh, because most people think that when they think of a holy roller, they think of the anti-James Bond. And so I've been emphasizing James Bond is the man who is unholy. Why? Because he gambles, he smokes, he drinks, he dances with an eye on more than just dancing. He's a He's not holy. That's kind of how we think in our culture about holiness. But as we've begun to see, that's not the case. That's not what God thinks about when God thinks about holiness. And and when, what's really neat is that even though we're not bound to the laws of Israel, uh, God put, and we've been seeing this week after week, God put into the laws of Israel some measure of God's nature and character so that we can see what God's like. And then as a result, we don't have to follow the law, but we can follow the principle or the, uh, the, the theological um, attribute of God that the law is meant to testify to. And so, uh, for the, the first week, two weeks ago, we looked at and we basically defined holiness. We said holiness is God being radically different than other gods and humans. Our God, Yahweh God, is the creator God and is radically different. And Kadosh, the Hebrew uh, notion of holiness, is the ways in which and the, and the way in which God is different, radically different. And that's going to be instantiated in God's laws. And so the first one we saw two weeks ago is God is radically committed. Okay, God is a God that says, I want you and I'm never going to quit on you. I'm, I'm, he covenants, that's, that's the language, covenants with people and says, once I've covenanted, that's it. You're mine and I don't quit on you. And as a result, we, people, and it was funny because we saw that demonstrated in a law about not wearing the same material, uh, two different materials on your body at the same time. A funny law to us, but testifying to God's radical commitment and saying that we as human beings, if we want to be holy, if we want to demonstrate God's holiness, we too should be radically committed. And one way that we can do that, that one thing that Christians do is we take uh, marriage seriously. Because marriage is a, is a type of commitment. And moreover, we take being one God people really seriously. We don't, we don't traipse around with other gods. It's one God is our God. And then last week, we saw a, a different thing. We saw that, that uh, Christians are called to be radically pro-life. And when we say pra- pra- radically pro-life, we're, we're talking not about uh, abortion, although that's, um, that's certainly implicated. Uh, we're talking about pro-capital L life. We're going to be pro Life, eternal life, the life of the Godhead, the life that is that, that God lives. And wherever we go in the world, we want to be on the side of life. And it was funny, we saw that based, we, we looked at the, uh, the, what, the, the blood prohibition, right? That uh, the, the Israelites aren't allowed to ingest blood. And we saw that that actually symbolizes being for eternal life. So we're going to look at another food law today. And it's going to show us, I think, do I need to switch it up? Okay, is that better? All right, let's, let's read the text from Leviticus 11. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, These are the creatures you are allowed to eat from the land animals. You can eat any animal that has divided hooves, completely split, and that rechews food. But of animals that rechew food and have divided hoofs, you must not eat the following. The camel, though it rechews food, it does not have divided hooves, so it's unclean for you. You're not allowed to eat the following from all water animals. You may eat anything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in sea or stream. But anything in the seas or streams that does not have fins and scales, whether it be swarming creatures in the water or any of the other living creatures in the water, it's detestable to you. 
and must remain so. You must not eat their flesh. You must detest their dead bodies. Anything in the water that doesn't have fins or scales is detestable to you. Of the birds, the following are the ones you must detest. They must not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the black vulture, the bearded vulture, the kite, any kind of falcon, any raven, the eagle owl, short-eared owl, long-eared owl, any kind of hawk, tawny owl, fisher owl, screech owl, white owl, scops owl, osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe. I don't know what that is, by the way. In fact, that may not be. Some of these we're a little confused about. Scholars aren't exactly sure what all of these are. but And the bat. I am Yahweh your God. You must keep yourselves holy and be holy because I am holy. You must not make yourselves unclean by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You must be holy because I am holy. Uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look. So this is weird, right? Uh, very strange. God says, okay, you can eat a lot of meat, um, but only this meat is okay. And it's these, these rules for what makes meat uh, palatable for Israel, it seems very, very arbitrary. And yet, I want to suggest to you that there's actually a really deep understanding, a deep understanding of God that's behind this. And so let's take a look uh, the, first at the land animals. Let's take a go closer look here. Okay, does this bother you, this picture? Does this make you slightly uncomfortable? I, it doesn't bother me, but I'm kind of a sloppy person. But I know a lot of people, um, my wife included, don't like the idea of feet on the table, right? Feet on the table, there's something kind of gross about that. And, and maybe it's, uh, maybe your, your mileage may vary, but like if, if, if you walked in your house and they're on your dining room table, um, you know, uh, well, in our house, Soren has learned how to climb up on it. So he stands on the table with his bare feet and he's walking around where we're going to eat. And that seems a little bit gross. Why? Not a rhetorical question. Why no feet on the table? It's not sanitary. It's gross. Right? We, as, as 21st century people, we know that feet get all kinds of dirt and germs and bacteria on them and the idea that they would be on a table or you, maybe even the shoes that you wear you walk around they get all muddy and gross and you put those on the table you that's dangerous right it's unsanitary so even if you knew that i just washed my feet and i put it on the table you still might feel uncomfortable and then you might think about it and be like well okay i see why though i see why i feel uncomfortable and i don't have to be well, something similar is going on in these dietary laws. And so let's take a closer look and we're going to see it. So going back to land animals, notice this. Uh, the only animals that, that Israelites are allowed to eat re-chew their food. That is another word for ch- a chewing cud, uh, right? So chewing cud. I have some examples of that. Here are some animals that chew cud. Uh, chewing cud means that, uh, so they like eat the, I guess the grass or the weed or whatever, and then they... I think they just keep chewing it and then maybe even like, I don't know how gross this gets, but they might swallow it and then spit it back up and chew. Is that true? Wow. That's horrible. So these animals chew cud, they swallow it, they come back and then they, they chew more. It's very, very disgusting. What do all of these animals have in common? There's the sheep at the top left. There's the cow. No, what is that? What's at the top right? Is that a it's a goat? Okay, goat on the top right. Bottom left is a deer. Bottom right is a cow. I'm sorry? What? No, they, well, they do all have cloven hooves, but that's not, that's, not what they, that's not what's important about this. 
Ryan Gates, future, what's it called? Ranger. No. Game warden, future game warden, knows about animals. These are all herbivores. Interesting. All right. Herbivore meaning uh, only eat, not meat. Okay, good. Let's, uh, now let's just, just check out something else here. Let's look at uh, the, the prohibition on birds. Right? So any of the, the sky creatures, right? What can you not eat? Eagle, vulture, vulture, kite, falcon, raven, owl, 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 hawk, owl, 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 really hate the owls, white owl, owl, osprey, stork, heron, hoopoe, whatever that is, bat. What do all of those have in common? Well, let's look at a few of them. (laughs) I think that bat is eating a mouse. It's like taking a mouse and eating it. And then the, the heron down there is eating a frog, and the owl is eating a snake, and then the, I think that's a f- vulture, is eating a carcass. Yes, and if you hadn't noticed already, you've noticed the very first thing that characterizes the food laws. God does not want Israel eating any animal that eats other animals. God only wants Israel eating animals that, that are herbivores. And if you're an animal that, uh, that, that, doesn't, that eats other animals, you're considered unclean. You're detestable. You're no good for consumption. Is that because owls are bad? No. God loves owls. God made owls. But remember, these are rules that are, these are laws that are gesturing to something else. And if you remember last week, we saw that God is radically pro-life, right? God wants to reverence life. God is in favor of life. And so when the Israelites are looking at their meal, they're going to remember that the only animals they eat don't have any blood on their hands, right? These are animals that are pro-life too, as it were. Okay? So, so God, the, the very diet of the Israelites, one of the things that's meant to remember them, uh, make them remember is that God is pro-life. And I think that's uh, the first thing in your note sheets. Israel's diet is radically pro-life. And this is also going to remind them when they look at pagans and uh, now Christians like us, where we're uh, feasting on, you know, do, I guess we don't eat a whole lot of, we don't eat, do we, how many carnivores do we eat? Do we eat carnivores? We what? Omnivores. Okay, like what's an example of that? Pig. Okay, pig, right? Bear. No one eats bears, Scott. Um, but I guess you, I mean, well, if we were starving, we would. Right, you're right. Okay. Um, and so they look at us and, they, and, and, they, and Israel is reminded these people aren't, don't have the same reverence or the, for life that God does. And we, re, we remember because of what they eat that God's pro-life. But that's not all. And so let's go back to the text and, and, and check this out. So this is, again, we're going to look at the land animals first. All right. You can eat any animal that has divided hooves completely split. <laughs> it's a very, very, very odd thing to do to decide that. Because so, there's land animals and there's basically two types. There are an, land animals that have hooves that are not cloven, uh, divided. Uh, but typically, I mean, and, and, and God is serious about this. He doesn't, wants the divided hooves only, not the undivided hooves. But typically, the way that uh, Israel would look at the difference between land animals is those that go around on their paws, like, uh, I guess like a lion, um, or a wolf, and, and then those that go around on hooves. Um, and I, I think, so I think a horse, for example, has hooves, but they're not divided. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah, okay. So, but, but there are a bunch that, that are divided. 
Now, that might be weird to us because we don't sort of classify the world in the same way that Israel does. And the way that Israel classifies the world is according not to, you know, mammals and amphibians and invertebrates or whatever it is that scientists do. The the way that Israel classifies is according to Genesis. It's according to the way that God created and so I, I think I have here um, days five and six, okay? So when God does the creation, and actually I was uh, going through this with Logan Schmalhofer last week because he's learning about creation uh, in his scout troop. Um, and, and so we were talking about the days of creation. And God makes this very clear delineation. Our world is divided up into sky, land, and water. And God provides the, the, the creatures of the sky and the water on day five, and then the, the creatures of the land on day six. And that's how God wants Israel, or that's how Israel understands the classifications of beasts. Not according to who's got a backbone and who doesn't, who's cold-blooded or warm-blooded, but instead where the, the, the place you live, the place you do your life, right? So birds, are their place of life is the air, and, and fish, their place of life is the sea. And, and land animals go on the land. So what does that have to do with divided hoofs? I think I have a picture of a divided hoof. This is, I believe, a deer. Uh, I read a little bit about this. Uh, divided hoofs actually are like the, the most effective um, animal way of grabbing onto uneven ground. So I have a picture here of, uh, there's a deer that's doing something seriously dangerous, and a goat doing something very, very dangerous. You may not be aware of this, but ancient Israel, uh, their, the climate and the area was very much like ours here in Southern California. It was basically a desert, but had enough um, irrigation and water to make it fruitful and lively. And so there were lots of places, crags, cliffs, hills, winding valleys, things like that abound in, in Israel. And God is saying, okay, first off, only herbivores you can eat. But I want you to pick the herbivores that have cloven hoofs. Why? I want you to pick the herbivores that are best at being able to do what animals do, to live an animal life. What does that mean? Well, uh, so animals, what do they have to do? They have to avoid predators. They have to survive. They have to find food. They have to be able to find shelter. And if they can do those, and then procreate, if they can do those four things, then they're living their best life. Right? That's, that's a deer living its best life now. And of the herbivores, the animals with the cloven hoofs are the ones best suited for that. They're the ones that can move about in dangerous terrain. They can move quickly over uneven and rocky grounds. They, I was even reading a thing that says like uh, the cloven hooves almost function like, um, like extremely uh, sturdy, long fingernails, and which is why goats um, and some deer can actually basically rock climb in a way because they're able to find all of the, and they can pull themselves up, and they can hang too. It's, it's fascinating. So let's just, okay, let's pause there. Maybe cloven hooves provide these herbivores with the best ability to be best, most adapted, most suitable for the life of an animal in a place like Israel. 
Let's go back to the text. If you notice this, this is about fish, water creatures, right? You may eat anything in the water that has what? Fins and scales, whether in uh, sea or stream. The Israelites were not very familiar with water creatures. Uh, most of their life was spent avoiding water. Uh, in fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, if someone's out on the water, something bad is about to happen. It happens in the New Testament too. It's because the water is a dangerous place for ancient people. But the Israelites did notice something about fish with fins and scales. I got a picture here. It's the uh, Arapaima on the left. The Arapaima. It, uh, it's native to rivers where piranha live. Right? Uh, it's just massive and it's kind of slow, relatively speaking, for a, for a fish. But it, it's able to survive and thrive in the midst of schools and schools of piranha. And the reason is, is it's got, its scales are hardened and, and in such a way that even the, the sharp blade-like teeth of the piranha can't penetrate. In fact, uh, this, this, uh, this fish was studied by um, our military as they're trying to come up with adaptive ways of developing new body armor for soldiers. And the reason is because what you can see on the right there, because even though uh, it's got all this, what's essentially like basically metal covering itself, it's still extremely flexible, like all fish. Because the scales kind of overlap each other in what's basically like chainmail. Right? So if you think about medieval soldiers, chainmail was in a very, you could move, you had tons of movement in a way that you wouldn't if you were wearing like, you know, a knight's outfit where it's like a bunch of steel, but you couldn't move very well. You'd be like a stilted robot. But if you had chainmail, you could move and you could be very, very uh, adept and agile. And the Israelites noticed and God highlights that of the creatures of the sea, the ones with scales and fins are the ones best able to avoid predators, to search out food, to get away, to move as fast as possible. Fins make fish incredibly speedy. And if you're noticing, if you're seeing this, when Israel's looking at the fish on their plate, they're recognizing the fish that they're eating is the fish that's best suited, best adapted, best for, for its domain, for the sea. And that's the next thing you're noticing. God commands Israel to eat only animals that are best adapted to their natural environment. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, what? <laughs> Why? Why does that matter? Like what, 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 what could that possibly be showing about God? I mean, we can, it, it's kind of intuitive when we talk about the, the prohibition on blood kind of showing us, well, God doesn't like death, right? That's, and so God is radically pro-capital L life. But what is this? Why is it that God wants to prevent Israel from eating? We, we get the carnivore thing, but why only choose these animals that, that are, you know, perfectly suited to survive and thrive in a, in a particular environment. What is that about? Why is that, that makes, what kind of sense does that make? Well, I can tell you this. If we go back to the text, we know, we know, this is the very end of the, the chapter, and God is like 
just super emphasizing. He's like, if you eat like this, you will be keeping yourselves holy. Be holy. I am holy. Don't eat the stuff that I'm saying. No, instead, if you eat like this, you will be holy. I am holy. This is clearly God saying, this is, this type of diet is going to show you something about my holiness. So, I mean, it's there. The question is, what does it mean? Let's, uh, let's drop to Abraham Lincoln. Let's, 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 let's hang on this for a second. Okay, Abraham Lincoln. Y'all read this book, Team of Rivals? It's, uh, it, got, it got hot um, because uh, Obama read it before um, he became president and it helped him uh, pick his cabinet members. The book is uh, by Doris Kearns Goodwin. You can see that on the screen. It, it, it analyzes the Lincoln presidency from the perspective of how he handled uh, people that started out hating him. Very interesting book. Uh, very interesting because he points out that four of Lincoln's highest appointed cabinet members, three of them were people that he beat um, to become president. They were all presidential candidates that he, that he beat. And it's funny, the book actually begins with like a catalog of all the horrible things they said about him. Like before, before he became president, like some they call him like a, a clueless pig farmer. Uh, they call him um, a gangly uh, nut. They call him they, they, all kinds of just. It's sort of like what Trump does when Trump's mad at somebody. He comes up with a nickname for them, and 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 these guys did the same thing to to Abraham Lincoln. And and so, but despite that, despite that, when he becomes president, when he's elected president. He invites all of them into very very influential positions in his cabinet. And on top of that, he picks a Democrat, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, he picks uh, uh, someone from the opposite party who was very much against him um, uh, to, to also be a part of the cabinet. And when they joined the cabinet, they hated him. They hated him and they hated each other. By the time the Civil War ends... These four people, the things they say about Lincoln, this is even before he dies, and it gets crazier after, they say things like, he was the wisest man I've ever met. They say things like, he was the best of us. They say things like, he was the only man for this moment. They understood that Lincoln had a counterintuitive and oddly precise ability to focus on the goal, winning the war, setting the slaves free, all of those things. But at the same time, uh, to be committed and, and, and invested in people, no matter how much they hated him. And over time, his commitment to people and his single-minded focus on the goal caused these people who hated each other to become the most incredibly effective team um, that maybe has ever existed in presidential history. These four guys, they say things like, you think Washington was a great president. You think that Jefferson was a great president. They don't hold a candle to this man. Because Lincoln, what he lacked in whatever he lacked, he made up for in his ability to discern and to know how rightly to live given difficult choices.
He knew how to bring people along just far enough to get them on board to accomplish the mission. He could see sometimes there was no right answer. There were only a whole bunch of wrong ones. But he could find the, the, the least evil of all of them. He found the lesser of the six or seven evils. And he, and he got consensus and he, and he enabled people who are otherwise, otherwise skeptical to see the, the vision and to buy in and to go. And to a man, all of his former rivals say he was the wisest man I've ever met. He was perfectly adapted to his environment. For a fish to be perfectly adapted to its environment, it needs scales and fins. The herbivore fish, I guess. For, for a, a land animal to be perfectly adapted, the land animal needs to have cloven hooves. For a human being to be perfectly adapted to his or her environment, a human being needs to be wise. And this is absolutely <laughs> rife, replete, Throughout Scripture, listen to you. Let's go back to the Ephesians text. Uh, this, just look at this. This is Paul. Even notice the language he uses. Walk right, like as as if you're you're going, you're walking through your life. You're walking through the environment of human life. How do you do it? Circumspectly, carefully, right? And what does that mean? Not being foolish, but wise. Redeeming the time. The days are evil. Redeeming the time. Use the time wisely. Make it count. You only have so many op- opportunities. You only have so many options. And there's so many ways you could go. So many paths you can take. And what, what Paul's saying is he's like, but when you're doing it, your best bet is wisdom. And if you think about this, you know, one of the things that the creation text uh, in Genesis is showing is God's perfect wisdom and God's categorization and division and development of the created order. God sets a dominion in the sky, a dominion in the water, a dominion in the, of, of land in between. It's, it's beautiful and, it, and it's governed, what? By God's wisdom. God's wise ability to know what's best given the circumstances. God's ability to, to sh- uh, craft principles of how things ought to be. That is something that God, makes God radically different than other gods. And other humans. And so I submit to you that when Israel sits down to table and they're looking at their fish and they're looking at the birds they're allowed to eat and they're looking at the, the land animals, the livestock that they're allowed to consume, they're reminded, one, God reveres life. God is pro-life. God loves life. But they're also reminded of a second thing. And that is God is wise. God sees right to the core and can discern and make the right choices, the right time. And Israel, you need to do that too. Don't live foolishly. Don't just blunder through life. That's what the, that's what the heathens do. That's what the pagans do. That's what the Christians do. That don't, don't do that, Israel. Instead, live the way God lives. Perceiving. Walking wisely. And if you do, you will be holy.
Right now, the, uh, the, the, the big question is for Californians, are you pro-Newsom or are you anti-Newsom? I have a picture here of some anti-Newsom people. Oh, I forgot. Third thing in your note sheets, if you have them. Holy rollers are radically wise, right? Holy rollers are radically wise. Like Lincoln and like God, we see the best and discern it and go for it. And part of that means that we kind of have to see the bo- both sides of an issue. We kind of have to, to sort of hear the other side out. We, we, we kind of have to do our research and, and investigate before we make decisions. We, we have to, to have as broad a sight as we can, as deep a sight as we can. Which is something that I find sorely lacking in myself, in our current environment. Now we can get to, to Gavin. On the left, you can see a picture uh, from a uh, St. Joseph's in Yonkers, just north of the Bronx in New York. And there was an article that came out, I think, four days ago, um, where they did an interview with a doctor at this hospital who basically was on the verge of quitting. He said, we're exhausted, you know, we're at capacity, we're running out of ventilators, and in my last um, shift, 12-hour shift, I, I pronounced six people dead from coronavirus or complications from coronavirus. And he says, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know if we're going to get through this thing. And so the article kind of comes away with this uh, sort of sense that whatever we got to do to, you know, help these doctors out and protect people, we got to do it. If that means crashing the economy, we got to do it. And then on the right, you can see the, uh, the protesters, Gavin's protesters. Uh, I, li- I like that one. Surfing is not a crime. It takes a lot to get surfers excited about anything, but you kick them out of the water, they're on it. They're ready to go protest. Um, and then you can see that other sign, all, all jobs are essential. And there's this sense, there's a, a, a lot of people here in the state of California who are like, this is nonsense, end everything, uh, let us go back to work. And isn't it interesting how there's this almost partisan divide? There's like on the one people like, look at this doctor, everyone's dying in New York. And the other side they're like, who cares, let's go back to work. It's a very interesting uh, moment in our national life where, I mean, I guess it seems like everything is, you know, just black and white back and forth these days. But does it strike you as wise? Does it strike you as wise to sort of reduce everything to, people are dying, let's lock down forever, or I don't have coronavirus, let me go to work. Does that strike you as a perceptive, in-depth, discerning division of the way we see things? 
And I confess to you, I have definitely been doing this. But holy rollers are not called to be like, it's this and this, and I don't want to hear anything else, and my mind is set, and and we're going to do this. Holy rollers are called to be wise. And that might mean that there's some kind of balance or maybe a middle road or uh, some other path that, that Christians, that holy rollers, are called to walk during this very, very divisive and frightening time. And it's so difficult to do because wisdom gets shouted down by the loud voices and the, and the partisan activists. It, it, wisdom is never in vogue amongst people who just want to have it their way and get it done. And those are the people who lead us into blundering. Those are the people who, they, they don't redeem the time. They waste it. They walk around as fools. And yet they have power. And it's difficult to have patience. It's difficult to be humble and to, and to try and see the sides and, and to navigate a path that, that really does balance the lesser of two evils or, or to, to increase life here and, and say no to it there. It's really, really hard. And it takes a lot of patience, a lot of perception. But just as God was radically wise in the way God created the world and all of the beautiful things in it, the balance and, and, and beauty of nature and the creation, just as God demonstrated that insight, that nuance, that ability to discern and to see deeply, to perceive, so holy rollers are called. Don't get caught up in the hype. Instead, be radically wise. Gracious God, I pray that in the midst of a really loud and angry and divisive culture, God, I pray that we will be holy rollers, that we will be those who who perceive deeply and who think carefully, who discern and and recognize that there's trade-offs in life. To see the principles behind what's happening, to not be just drawn to to anger and, and to loss of thought and to hysteria and fear, but instead to be people who are wise like you are wise. That when this passes and people can look back and and the emotions and the fear and the anger have passed, they can look back and say, those holy rollers were the best of us. They were the wisest amongst us. And they were the ones who brought us through. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.